Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A controversial opinion that, that I've always had is that I don't think it is possible to build a new credit bureau. Like, I don't think it can be done because ultimately it's a distribution game. Like, the bureaus have all the distribution and no one wants to join a network unless everyone else is already on it. And so the only way there's going to be this real-time system where everyone has full coverage is if the bureaus participate. If the bureaus don't do this, then this is how it will be, and open banking will get better and better and better, and the bureaus will lose market share, and that will happen. So it's really up to the bureaus here to become real-time and become easy to work with. On a philosophical level, maybe only a philosophical level, you could theoretically get a bureau's onboarding time to a couple of hours. You could make the API so easy to use, fetch and reciprocate. Fetching, you could do in a couple of hours, reciprocating maybe a little longer, and then you could totally change how the credit industry works. I've got two jobs, if you count this one, and two kids and a wife, so I don't get to watch as much sports as I would like to. But given the chance, road cycling is one of my go-tos. There's nothing that I like more than on a July afternoon to put on a stage of the Tour de France. The mountains, the colours of the peloton, they make for a fantastic backdrop to any day. More than that though, I love cycling for its tactics and the many ways in which a team could win a race. It's not the 100 metres where if Usain Bolt runs, Usain Bolt wins. There's teamwork, there's timing your attack, there's weighing up your strengths and your weaknesses relative to those of your various competitors. Do you trust your strongest rider to go mano a mano in a group sprint? Or do you use them as a decoy while sending someone else in the breakaway? Almost all of cycling strategy, though, comes from one simple thing, the slipstream. Do you value the head start or an easier ride? Because the rider in front with her nose to the wind can be expending as much as 25% more energy than a rider further back, safely ensconced within the group. The downside is, it makes it harder for an unexpected solo attack to succeed. Or put into terms that will make sense for today's episode, the lack of a slipstream can make it hard for ambitious competitors to attack the group and shake up the status quo. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. Dylan Harandaran, welcome to the show. Likewise. Well, likewise, it's your show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) I started my first job in creditor strategy in January of 2002. Before we talk about Slipstream and how you're going to be fixing credit, let's set ourselves in time and, and sort of work out in terms of background where you're coming from. So when I was walking into that Capital One office for the first time to start my working career, where were you? Well, I would have been six years old, so I was probably figuring out multiplication or something. And my youngest co-founder was uh, probably not born yet. So I, you know, various internships and things at various different banks. I ended up at JP Morgan 
where I was on the the UK TMT team. So we were doing mergers, acquisitions, IPOs for all sorts of really cool companies in the UK and the US. That was where my career began. And, you know, it's interesting looking back on my interview into JP Morgan. I, I said in my first interview, I was like, one day I'm going to leave and build a business. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I definitely didn't think it was going to be in the credit space. But I always had that ambition. And so, yeah, I did my time in banking. I learned a lot there. But building something was was always the plan. When you were at JP Morgan, you were young, just out of university, you know, great job in London, you know, one of the most exciting cities in the world, a young man earning nice salary. The trap of that can often be that we start spending on those credit cards, we take those overseas holidays, but you very quickly took that leap. So what was it that, I guess, inspired the move towards Slipstream? Mm. And I suppose you've already mentioned that there was always this ambition to be an entrepreneur, but that gave you that courage to say, I quite like this nice job and salary, <laughs> but I'm going to try the the entrepreneurship. I think it was a couple of things. I think I knew, like I've always been a long-term thinker. I knew that if I stayed for too long, I would kind of get hooked and the golden handcuffs would slide on. And before I knew it, I'd be, you know, 65 with a, a nice big bank account, but um, maybe hadn't spent my life in the best possible way. So yeah, I, I knew I had to leave relatively quickly, but I, I also knew that banking, JP Morgan would expose me to things and teach me a lot in a very short space of time. And that's exactly what it did. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> when I left banking, in retrospect, it was slightly naive. Like I left because I thought I thought this, this was a business idea. I was going to build a rental business. I was going to rent Pelotons because it was the middle of COVID and everyone wanted Pelotons. And naively, I thought there was a great business there. And, you know, I left because I was pestering the management team at Peloton. I think I said like, somewhere around like 15 to 20 emails before the chief strategy officer finally took a meeting with me. And he was like, go away, stop emailing <laughs> us. And, and yeah, the idea was I wanted to rent Pelotons and realized quickly that wasn't a good idea. And I just quit this very well-paid job. But I also knew I didn't want to stay in banking forever. It was always the plan to build something. And on a philosophical level, just the definition of employment in many ways is you're generating more wealth for the shareholders than you are for yourself. JP was a great place to start. I met so many amazing, ambitious people there and learned a lot. I mean, you left JP Morgan, you started, well, you tried to start this business and realized, okay, this is not <laughs> going to have the legs I thought it did. Again, very easy to have stepped back into the business world and, and sort of go back to the salaried life, but you pivoted and you didn't pivot in an obvious direction. Mm. How did the idea of the current form yeah. of, of Slipstream start? How did that move towards credit begin? It was... In in a weird sort of oblique way, we never intended to end up here. We started off, as I said, like it was a Peloton rental business. It iterated many, many times and eventually became sort of rentals as a service, very similar to Buy Now, Pay Later. So we'd integrate into a brand's website and enable them to rent their products out. But in so doing, obviously, you know, our marquee client when we when we really hit our peak was, was Bird, you know, big Silicon Valley inventor of the shared e-bike, e-scooter. We were helping them rent out 2000 pound bicycles and we suddenly realized oh this is actually a lending business in many ways you know it's a consumer credit agreement you're taking on credit risk and you're underwriting credit risk and so that was how we began to discover the credit bureaus we had no background in credit no background in lending and myself and my co-founders were suddenly talking to the big 3 bureaus figuring out like how you integrate in what what is in a credit file we were total outsiders and we had the, you know, the naive optimism goggles on about building this rental business. And essentially the crux of why why we shut it down was 
you know, a 30 kilo e-bike going out is one thing. Bringing it back is is actually very complex and painful. And if you can't scale operationally, then, you know, when you're this buy now, pay later-esque business and you're fitting your unit economics in three, five percent of revenue, if you can't get to operational scale, you can't get to capital scale. Yeah. You can't get to capital scale. You don't have a business here. And so... That whole sort of year and a half of building this buy now, pay later business, you know, we had great clients, we were growing, we had revenues, VCs were super interested in us, but we knew fundamentally it wasn't going to work. And the whole time we'd been grappling with this pain point of how do you go live with a credit bureau? How do you ingest bureau data? And the process was, you know, I think it's pretty universally acknowledged, like it takes a long time. It's not easy. But, you know, my co-founders are exceptional engineers. They're used to working with products like Stripe where you integrate into Stripe in, in like an hour or two. Everything is well documented. The API is really clean and easy to use. And the bureaus, for many various reasons, are just not like that. And so we'd been grappling with this problem. We understood it really intimately as, as customers of the bureaus. And we just saw a really big opportunity that isn't being served, where our ideal end customer is the bureau itself. So that's how a bunch of 20-something-year-olds ended up in the credit bureau space. Like we never planned on it. But to us, this is a a huge opportunity to help fintechs go live, use bureau data, but also to help the bureaus, like to become more competitive relative to things like open banking or to capture this like unserved mass of fintechs who really want to use bureau data, but it takes too long. Yeah. And I think that the value of the data was so big for a time that the fintechs would find a way to, to deal with it. And it was clunky but for people that didn't really move the needle for the credit bureau so i can definitely see how this problem persisted in that world and before we get that part of of what slipstream's doing kind of nuts and bolts there we talked about pursuing the sort of dream of entrepreneurship and the pivot you're now sort of two years into the total journey about one year into the current format what was the reality looking back of being a founder and that journey compared to (laughs) those sort of glorious expectations um when people ask us, myself, Connor, Rishi, um, you know, they're like, oh, I have this idea. I want to build a startup. Our advice to people is don't bloody do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. It, I, I, naivety is very valuable when you're a founder. Like the fact we've, we'd never done it before and were slightly clueless at first is definitely how we have persisted. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's been a lot harder than I could have ever imagined when I started this. And I think had I known how hard it was going to be, maybe I would have stayed in banking on some level. I don't know. Maybe retrospectively, I I wouldn't have made the same decision. But I personally love it and hate it. It's like living, I I tell my friends because they see me in different moods all the time. It's like living on a very precarious yo-yo. You know, there are big highs, big lows, and they happen day after day, right after each other. And so there have been some real learnings. You know, like the big learning for us is like a deal isn't done until it's actually done. Like how many times have we thought, oh, there's this massive customer, there's this massive deal. If we sign this, like, we are set. We're going to be on a yacht in the Caribbean. <laughs> and, like, it obviously never never pans out that way. Um, there have been some really big learnings, some big ups, big downs. But what's what's interesting for us is, like, we do view this as a journey. And as individuals, as co-founders, are, are people who we try to improve. For example, like, the speed at which we move, the way we do things is so different today compared to how it was at the very beginning. Building that buy now, pay later business, signing big customers. These were things that, you know, when I first started straight out of banking, relatively young, I was very clueless about. And, you know, we're a very different team today than we were when we first started. I am a very different person today than I was when we first started. And I wouldn't trade that. 
but it's definitely been a lot harder than I could have foreseen. Let's move back towards Substream and kind of the nuts and bolts terms. What are you looking to do in that space? We want to cut the time it takes for a fintech or even a, a you know a major bank integrating into a new bureau from many weeks, many months at times. You know, we have people we've spoken to where it's taken up to a year to integrate into a bureau, down to just a couple of days, maybe even faster than that. And the way you do that is by building the world's best API and integration platform, well-documented in, in all the common languages and so on, for any fintech to integrate into any bureau, for everything from the sales process, the due diligence, the technical integration, everything. In the old world, it would kind of be driven by the bureau. They would have to say, this is how my data structures are. This is what I want from you. Two years of historic data. It's got to come through the cleaning process. How much is getting rejected? Come back again. Mm. Okay, we've only got six months. Then you've got to go to the board and say, well, what about this? Are we happy to bring them on for less data? And nobody's happy. I mean, this is one of those areas where everyone's just losing money. It's not that yeah. competition, it's just waste. Right. It's a two-sided problem. It's not just the customer suffering, it's the bureau's missing revenue. So how does the world of APIs change that interface relationship, I guess? Yeah. So the bureaus have APIs. But for example, multiple of the bureaus use a SOAP XML API. This is an old format and an old design that no one really works with and is very painful to use. And it's very obvious when you talk to software engineers and my co-founders, like, this is hell to work with. And for example, if you use our API, you're using this beautifully formatted, well-documented JSON API, which is very easy for any engineer to pick up and use. You know, for example, the response you get when you pull a, a credit file from one of the bureaus is full of codes and numbers that you cannot intuitively look at and understand what's going on in there. They're tied into formats and designs and architectures that that are not up to par for what fintechs today want to need, right? And you use our API and everything is already well written out. Like anyone with no credit background can look at a credit file and just know what's happening in there. It's very intuitive. The time spent going to market when you're a fintech, maybe you've raised a venture round, maybe you haven't. Months is is literal survival. That is runway. And often a startup will have a year to two years of runway to survive. If you're spending six months of that back and forthing with a bureau over over data, which is critical to what you're doing, you're a lending fintech or whatever, like that is time of survival. That is time going to market, getting customers. What we're doing is is kind of going, well, we're a team that's used to working with beautiful, intuitive, well-designed products. We've also experienced integrating into the bureaus ourselves. So we know how they want things done. And so how do you make the credit bureaus feel like working with Stripe? Like, how do you make it so easy for a developer, you know, someone who has never worked with a bureau before, like we were novices, to look at a, a bureau file and understand it so intuitively? How can we get the time to market as close to zero as we physically can? There's huge parts of the market that are doing credit in ways that aren't obvious. So there's a lot of people that just never would have had a route to the credit bureau. Yeah. So we have a spectrum that is unicorns that do hundreds of thousands of credit checks a month, all the way down to the earliest of early stage fintechs that, you know, some of them haven't even launched yet. They know they need bureau data. They need it for their FCA authorization. And, and we're the path of least resistance. But the crux of why I think bureaus don't serve fintechs well is about the return on time. If I'm a salesperson in a bureau... I have to hit a certain quota each month. And if I sign up a, a bank, like a big player, that gets my quota. You know, I get my commission. 
if I sign like 10 tiny fintechs, some of them might not even make it to the end of next year. Yeah. That's not going to make my numbers. And I still have to spend all this time on them. And so the return on time for the bureaus serving fintechs is just too low. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And so at the strategic level, the bureaus understand that this is a bit of a missed opportunity. And they understand that today what might be the tiny piddly startup in five years' time could be the next Monzo or Klarna or Revolut. And if you don't serve them today and they go and sign up with another bureau, have fun trying to win their business as a primary bureau five years from now when everyone else wants their business. And I think what will happen is one of the bureaus will hopefully partner with us and then suddenly become very competitive serving fintechs, winning a lot of this fintech demand. And what I think will happen is the other two bureaus will sit up and go, we're losing out. And this is the other bureau's network getting bigger. This is them winning revenue. And if you know, if you think about it, if you use our API and you win the early stage fintechs who are very potentially low return on time customers and you get them on board in a few days, why not do that for a big bank? How does that make you competitive when you pitch HSBC for their primary bureau or, or whatever, right? And I think there's also the cultural shift that it used to be credit bureaus were about building big walls. I mean, the whole business model, join the club, big fee involved, big audit program, six months to a year of sitting down with everyone, make sure you... In the US, they come to your office and audit you in person. Like they literally turn up and check that. <laughs> yeah. They're like, can we see the service? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On-site visits. Yeah. It was all about, are you inside or are you outside? And the people inside the club were quite strict about who else could come in. These were the big banks that covered 80% of the market, 90% of the market. Said, well, the little guy's not bringing us much extra data. Mm. And I think now the way we think about data is changing. It's becoming a lot more open, a lot more sharing. And that needs to filter through all the embedded processes and things that have been built to survive in a world of big walls to now a world where data is more open. And of course, there have been many steps in that direction. But I think you are getting to some fundamental lags in there that say, well, how do we bring on somebody with a great idea and mm. 10 customers? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the gap between what the chief revenue officer wants and what the the salesperson on the ground wants, right? And and interestingly, it's also the gap between what the chief product officer wants and the the engineers on the front line actually building the stuff. But I think you're right. There are three bureaus. Each has the well, there are more, but there are really only three, and each has a big overlap on the core big banks and and so on who who use all three. But wouldn't it be awesome if even the earliest stage fintech could report to all three? Because when I talk to fintech founders, that's actually what they want to do. They see reporting to TransUnion Equifax Experian as doing right by their customers. That helps them build their credit profile. That protects them, the vulnerable ones, the ones who are in debt spirals from accidentally accessing too much credit. So I see this really interesting angle of fintechs want to report to everyone because it's right. And then some of the bureaus, you know, the one we're talking to in particular right now is their mindset is also 
completely different at the top level. It's it's not we want to be the siloed institution. It's we think this is the future trajectory of the industry. We think that there will one day be a common standard for reporting data to all three and that people want to report to all three and we should drive this. This one in particular wants to compete on all its value add, not just having this, the, you know, this great network. They want to be all the other things on top of the network. And so our vision is kind of twofold. It's we want to cut the effort and time for fintechs to use and access bureau data. We also want to create this common standard for all bureaus to get data from all fintechs because it's just good, right? You know, and I think what will happen is the bureau that drives the common standard will benefit the most at first. And then the other two will see that they're benefiting and hopefully join in too. Yeah. And I mean, it is how you assumed it would work. I mean, if you didn't have any jading from 20 years in the industry, if someone just explained the concept, you would assume you just sent the data. It shouldn't be complicated. This is not yeah. a process that if you were explaining to a five-year-old, they would understand why it was so hard to do all three. When every, all other data kind of immediately goes up somewhere into the cloud and everybody yeah. knows about it, why is this data that for 40 years now has been the backbone of traditional lending mm. or at least you know, mass lending in the high street? The data that fintechs, lenders, buy now, pay later, mortgage lenders provide the bureaus with it's pretty simple stuff like name, address, amount owed, credit limit, and, and so on, right? Like the time, the date, like yeah. these are like pretty first principles things. What we're doing is actually really, really complicated, but you can ingest this data and then give it to the bureaus in, you know, the keys format, the insight format, depending on which bureau. It's, it's obviously a very hard thing to build, but imagine if that real-time flow of data via an API became something the bureau started to ingest direct from the API. Step one is, Simplify the integration, simplify the reciprocating of data, create a common standard. But eventually, like, I think TransUnion, Equifax and Experience should become real-time networks. You know, how many customers of a buy now, pay later player goes to all the other BNPL players and borrows money in the same month? And if bureau data is stale by a month, two months, refreshed once a month, that doesn't get caught in the system, right? Like you could go to five banks tomorrow not financial advice. <laughs> you could go to Don't, five banks tomorrow, it, yeah. borrow £10,000 at each bank and just abscond. And and the system cannot catch that because it's 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 a slow system. So yeah, like I said, like we view the bureaus as like the biggest potential customers, but we're solving a problem for the fintechs too. You know, we see a lot of great innovation in open banking, but that's the reason we're not in open banking is because we see the bureaus as this like essential thing, making them like Stripe, this essential problem to solve. There's certainly a lot of innovation happening here. Direct ID, great company in that open banking space, rolling out some scores. And I think in that thin file space on the fringes, people are having to use it because they can't yeah. get onto the open bureau. Open banking is amazing for that. But there's still going to be for a long time, big old dinosaur of what the last two years of your repayments been. I, I, I had an interesting little thought just now. But for us, when we think about real-time data and enabling the bureaus to become real-time networks. When someone runs a credit check, they pay for that credit check. And it's like a one-and-done kind of deal. But imagine if instead you went, I have this 360 real-time timeline of a customer. That's a recurring revenue opportunity. Not just the open banking, this is my Monzo card that looks really good. Imagine if you had a low-friction 360 real-time insight into a customer. I think lenders would pay a lot of money for that. And I see that you also, your pricing model is right down to basically individual transactions yeah like we're we're really trying to solve the problem we experienced when we first started there was this weird chicken and egg that when you're very young as a fintech like very young you're like inception level young no one wants to invest in a fintech that doesn't have fca authorization doesn't have access to bureau data but also 
the bureaus don't want to serve you until you have those things. And the FCA doesn't want to regulate you until you have those things. And you're in this really, really hard place. Okay, we believe in the fintech model. When a bureau serves a fintech, they're almost acting like a venture capital fund. In that, for VCs, the economics of investing in a startup is that it's a power law distribution where the 5, 10, if you're lucky, 15% that, that succeed will succeed so spectacularly, they will cover the losses of all the ones that have failed and some. And when you're a bureau, it's kind of the same thinking of like, if you don't cast a wide fishing net, you're not going to make the best decisions. Like, bring down the barriers to entry for the for the fintechs. You know, kill the setup fee if you need to. Like, kill the minimum spend. You know, some of them will die. That's that's how it is with startups. But five to seven years from now, you've bagged the next Monzo, the next Klarna, the next Revolut. And so pricing is one thing. But obviously, you know, you never want to compete just on price. But instead, if you compete on integration, like speed to market and, and so on, that that's a huge draw for fintechs. But yeah, like for us, the starting point is... We want to help fintechs on board as quickly as possible, but also as cheaply as possible, because some of these guys are going to be huge. And that will pay itself off for us in the future. And we're willing to just swallow that cost today, which is expensive, but that's okay. That early market reaction, is there anything that's um, sort of happening that you can share in that space? Yeah, there's a lot of interest from fintechs, which is fantastic. I mean, it validates what we experienced. There's also a lot of interest from the bureaus. You know, I can tell you, like, you chat to the CPO of one bureau and they're going to tell you, like, everything we're telling, like, everything we've just discussed is stuff they know. Like, they know it's hard for fintechs to integrate. They know that they're missing all of this opportunity. And and so nothing we've actually discussed is actually that mind-blowing to anyone who works at a credit bureau. And so the bureaus are super interested. The fintechs are interested. Weirdly, the VCs are interested because I think they're, like, hearing from their, their fintech portfolios. Things are going well. But as I've learned... There's always a baseball bat ready to hit you in the face unexpectedly. <laughs> so a lot of uh, my audience is in the, the credit bureau world. I spent 10 years there myself or in the lending world more broadly. So if somebody listening is wanting to get involved, want to learn a bit more about how they could use this themselves, where's a good place for them to go to follow Slipstream and to learn more? Yeah, I mean, go on our website. Cool, that's oneslipstream.com. There is a link to my personal diary on it. If not, my diary is canonly.com slash Dylan, spelt weirdly, uh, (laughs) D-I-L-L-O-N. And you can stick some time in or email me. The market for credit bureau data is relatively small, as in it's fintechs of a certain type. And so, yeah, if people want to get in touch, email, LinkedIn, whatever, we're pretty responsive. Doing so much in such a short time. What is the the focus for Slipstream? What are the big uh, events we should be keeping an eye on? Onboarding customers, as many as we can, as quickly as we can, is very much our focus. You know, we've got our first customers, they're all using the API, and obviously there will be debugging and solving things and building new features. For us, it's it's just onboarding. It's We're not even really focused on revenue because, like I said, our, our customers are not so much the... The fintechs, and you know, yes, we are serving them, but really, we we think our customers are the bureaus. And so, for us, in the next six months, hopefully, a bureau partnership will come out of this. So, if there are any people at the bureaus who'd like to get in touch, <laughs> yeah, indeed, they should be listening. I'll check up on all my old bureau friends, make sure they're listening to this one in particular. But Dylan, thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting, and I think that yeah, you're onto something. And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform, and share the updates widely on LinkedIn. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited by Fina Charlson of FC Productions. Show music is by I Am Wake, 
And you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show. And I'll see you again next Thursday. Thursday.